I need, I wanted to understand the supply chain. How does it work? I visited a bunch of mines, but I bought a little bit of gold from yeah. a guy in a shack who was using a little handheld scale. And then I took that gold. And when I left Congo, I put it in my sock as smugglers do. <laughs> this is very hands-on. It's good. Yeah. I went to Kampala yeah. where I had heard from people, certain locations that buy gold. And so I went to those locations and I said, I have some gold. I was in the town of Mangualu. Uh, here's a couple of samples. You know, what uh, would you buy it? Mm -hmm. what, what kind of price are you offering? That was Dan Fay talking about the practicalities of research in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Dan has done a lot of interesting work, but this interview is largely about his work with the group of experts. These were people who were tasked by the UN Security Council to work out what was really going on on the ground with respect to sanctions, armed groups, smuggling, and several other issues. Now, that's a job with an incredibly interesting day-to-day. -day. What does good research look like for these incredibly sensitive, often quite dangerous issues? What do we still get wrong when we think about Eastern DRC and why? What's wrong with our mental models? How can someone with an academic skill set contribute effectively in these environments and really use that to create social value? This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Dan has a lot of funny stories from the Congo days, a country that is, is very close to my heart and is a no-bullshit very practical sort of guy. So please do enjoy this one. Define home for me. I uh, was born in the Bronx. Uh, were you really? I did not know that. Raised in the suburbs of New York. Yep. Um, went to school in Indiana. <laughs> and then I went to California right. when I was 21. So <laughs> and lived out there. So I, I really consider Northern California my home. Okay. Yeah. Do you go back very often? Yeah, um, I'm going back in uh, three weeks. Uh, we were talking about the fields. What's the favorite? Your favorite country that you've worked in? Most interesting. Congo. Congo. Yeah. Everyone says Congo. What's your least favorite then? Uh, least favorite, I think Rwanda. Just because I always felt like I was being watched and listened to. Everyone always says. <laughs> everyone always says Congo Really? Well, I've had a very Central Africa bias so far, so uh -huh. okay. um, that makes sense. Like South Asians, I assume, will not say that, but you were like the fourth or fifth person to, to use that pair. Uh huh. If you're at the pub, how do you describe what you do for a living? Currently? Yes. Well, in, in general, if someone says, "What do you do?" What do you say? Well. I, one thing I say is I'm writing a book about Congo. That's, right. that's generally the first thing. I can tell you that's not that lucrative. <laughs> that's not really lucrative. But I get paid uh, to be investigations manager for a nonprofit organization that works on labor and environmental issues in the garment industry in Asia. Right. That's quite clear. It's fairly specific. But the story's a bit more complicated, no? A jack of all trades who... Uh, my background includes, I started out in the Navy. Mm -hmm. um, I then worked in, uh, as a delivery driver and in a warehouse. Didn't know that. Uh, in a homeless shelter. Then I worked with homeless veterans yeah. uh, for about six years. 
before going back for a master's degree in international relations and transitioning more towards kind of conflict and environment issues mm. and uh, pursuing a PhD looking at conflict in Congo and then leading into other jobs, including the UN. Mm. And where is that taking you geographically? We have Congo, we have the US, obviously, where else? Well, my work in Africa has been mainly Congo, uh, Uganda, Sudan, Mali, mm-hmm. uh, Rwanda, Burundi, mm-hmm. uh, Kenya. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much covers it. Mm-hmm. But mainly, most of the time was spent in Congo. Right. Well, it's a hell of a pivot, no, from uh, homeless veteran, which is clearly important and I'm sure interesting some of the time at least and fulfilling, but it's a hell of a pivot from there to yeah, Central it, Africa it investigations wasn't a, type stuff, no? It wasn't a straight line, but basically when I was working with veterans, I worked with Vietnam veterans who were exposed to Agent Orange mm-hmm. and to Gulf War veterans who were exposed to a variety of things and then mm-hmm. health problems. And so there was this kind of environmental health aspect to yeah. the veterans that I was very interested in and working mm-hmm. on. That then I tra- I did my master's uh, thesis looking at the environmental effects of war and how that, Im- you know, the different effects of that on health, economics. But during that time, I read King Leopold's Ghost, which is one of the definitive history books about Congo. And suddenly I was fascinated with Congo and uh, started reading more about the incorporation of natural resources into conflict. And that set me off on a new path, which got me to Berkeley and uh, doing my PhD on that subject. Really? That's Adam Hawks. His name Adam Hawkschild, no? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I mean, it is a fascinating history, but people don't usually have sort of a clear pivot point like that. They're like, well, things sort of happen. Yeah. I can remember I was in the Harvard Law Library and I was just killing time looking at the stacks and I saw the book and I'd heard of it and I pulled it out and just started reading it for a fun diversion. And uh, that's where it began. It's so interesting. And you started a PhD in pretty much that issue, The, the political ecology of Advance, something like this? Yeah, I looked at, at how, um, you know, initially I went into the field with this massive project of I was, was going to study what did Uganda do in Congo. Hmm. Uganda did a lot of things They did Congo. a lot of things in a lot of places. <laughs> yes. And, but as a result of being in the field, mm-hmm. I found that the Aturi district was the place where I made great connections mm-hmm. and I was able to get really good information. Mm-hmm. So I narrowed my focus down to... Ituri, which mm-hmm. is in the northeastern part of Congo, uh, near the border with Uganda. And I just focused on the role of gold and land conflicts mm-hmm. and how that influenced the war in Ituri. So the Ugandans played a major role in that, but then it spawned uh, an ethnic conflict that spiraled out of control and has unfortunately been flaring up. Yes, this is re- re-spiraling uh, yeah. as we speak, unfortunately. You have a doctorate, but you're not... I'm not speaking with many PhDs for this um, this podcast series precisely because they're generally not practitioners. They're generally not very connected with either the frontline or policy. So how does that uh, enhance or, or inform, I guess, um, the work that you do? I think it was a great experience for me. I, when I did my master's degree, mm. I knew I'm not done. Two years was not enough. <laughs> right. I wanted to go deeper. Yeah. 
and understand things better. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the ways in, in which I think it's really helped me to be more of a person doing practice rather than theory is that it gave me a real understanding of the importance of history. Part of that was just spending a lot of time in the field talking to people about what's going on. And you know, I can remember talking to some elders in the Aturi district mm -hmm. and saying, I was trying to understand what happened at the start of the conflict in 1999 in Aturi. And I asked them that question. And they said, well, in, in order to, un to answer that question, we have to start in the 16th century. Mm -hmm. And they started in the 16th century, went through the 17th, the 18th, the arrival of the Belgians, right. the 19th. And finally, we got to 1999 after mm -hmm. a couple of hours. And, you know, at the time, I was like getting really impatient. But then I started to realize, actually, this is very important for me to hear this because mm -hmm. this is how people here view what's happening now. Mm -hmm. There is this big historical lens so, you know, that was one of the things I really got out of my PhD is mm -hmm. that you can't just kind of pop into a place and talk to a few people and necessarily think that you understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. There's a much deeper historical narrative that often, you know, interacts with what's happening currently to produce things like violence. But the other thing I gained from my PhD, I think, was just a real grounding in research methods and ethics. Both of those became very important when I worked later for the UN group of experts mm. and really uh, came back to me uh, a lot of the lessons that I learned at Berkeley, but having to practice interview techniques, go through a very rigorous ethical training, which was, mm. you know, sometimes it, a lot of it was really just about Berkeley covering their butts. Uh, you know, it was clearly written by yes. lawyers <laughs> so that if anything went wrong, they could pin it on me. Of course. But it, you know, there's things that you come to understand, like, you know, if you're going to interview a child that you need to get consent from a parent or guardian, yeah. or if you're talking to a prisoner to recognize that there's vulnerabilities there, that they can be very vulnerable to suggestion. So there was a lot of very important aspects to kind of the, both the research methods and the ethics side that I got out of the PhD. That's interesting. And you can, I assume, guess what I will ask next then, because the, when you talk about investigations in terms of supply chains, when you talk about investigations with a group of experts, I mean, what does the process sort of very broadly speaking look like? If you wanted to investigate gold smuggling, like gold oh. smuggling from Aturi to Kampala, that is an extremely, as an a very helpfully specific example. <laughs> you know, it, it, it started with me in 2007 going to a gold mining area and on a whim going inside a gold mine mm -hmm. uh, that was an underground gold mine. As that, one does, yeah. Um, well, you know, some of them are pits. Yeah. So, but this one was like from the colonial era. Mm. I did not realize how dangerous it was <laughs> when I agreed to go inside. Yeah. And in fact, I often couldn't see until my flash on my camera went off. Anyway, it made a big impression on me, but I was also fascinated. I was hooked. Right. Like, this is amazing. It's, yeah. it's like stepping back into the 1850s Sierra Nevada mm -hmm. in terms of the methods that people are using to mine gold. So while I was doing my PhD research, I need I wanted to understand the supply chain. How does it work? Mm -hmm. So I saw the production side 
I visited a bunch of mines, mm -hmm. but I bought a little bit of gold mm -hmm. from a guy in a shack who was using a little handheld scale mm -hmm. with coins mm -hmm. on one side and, you know, a little couple of gold nuggets on the other side. And then I took that gold and when I left Congo, I put it in my sock mm -hmm. as smugglers do. <laughs> this is very hands-on. It's good. Yeah. I went to Kampala yeah. where I had heard from people certain locations that buy gold. And so I went to those locations and I said, I have some gold. I was in the town of Mangualu. Uh, here's a couple of samples. You know, what uh, would you buy it? Mm -hmm. what, what kind of price are you offering? Right. And so I was just testing what people told me and where are the key points in this supply chain to try and understand it. So that was one of the first things I did just as a student mm -hmm. to make sure I'm just kind of ground truthing what I'm hearing others telling me about mm -hmm. the trade. But later, uh, when I did this, it, you know, in a more serious way, both for consultancies and then for the group of experts, it involved kind of talking to sources, mm -hmm. many of whom I'd established while I was a student, coming back to them years later, talking about who's buying, where is it going, how is it going out, mm -hmm. how much is leaving. But in uh, Kampala, where a lot of it was going to, I also started doing surveillance mm -hmm. of the places that were buying the gold. And these were not hard to f figure out. So I would go by, I would walk by, I'd go by on the back of a motorcycle in a taxi. I would change my appearance. I'd go in the morning. I'd go in the afternoon. And only one time did I, was I in the right place at the right time. Right when a car pulled up with Congolese license plates, I was pretending I was on the phone, but I had the video running. Mm. I got a good shot of the car. Yeah. And then later when I was back in Congo, was able to trace that license plate and the car back to a well-known gold smuggler from Bunya, the capital of Vituri. Mm -hmm. Only time that worked. All the other times I walked by, there's nothing going on. Right. But um, that was kind of one of the least effective methods. But, you know, also in, in Kampala, I hired two Congolese guys separately. They didn't know each other. I gave them the same task, which was who's buying gold where are they buying it? And they each came back with the same information. Mm. Uh, one of them also told me that one time I was there that government had tipped off the uh, gold buyers mm. that I was in town because mm. they knew by this point, I, they knew what I was doing. So when I arrived at Entebbe, apparently the message was passed that group of experts is in town, keep a low profile. Right. And, uh, you know, but that made me a little wary, too, because there's a lot of money involved there. And, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, so I had to kind of watch my back a little bit. Mm. But another, I, I don't want to go too far astray, but another thing I did, I got government documents yeah. through another source that I paid out of pocket to get the articles of incorporation. Mm -hmm. And I was able to trace out what are the other businesses these guys own that I'm pretty sure they were just money laundering. And I had a GPS device, mm -hmm. so I recorded the exact locations of their buying look where they bought. Mm -hmm. I put those in the report to leave no doubt for any authorities that they could not find yeah. this house. But nothing happened. So, <laughs> well, I'll come, I'll come back to that. Do you still have the gold? You, you did. You, did, you sold the gold, or you kept the gold? I have the gold. It's a good souvenir. 
it you know it i mean it's not much it's no. uh it, it's, <laughs> it's a, a few nuggets. it's a cool story though but you know i i'm a little wary of saying i smuggled gold out of congo <laughs> yeah i guess but, so that could uh, be interpreted the wrong way i mean it was it was literally a couple of nuggets yeah. but it was really just to see how does this work you know from the mine to the initial sellers yeah. to the bigger buying towns and on to Kampala, tracing it all along the way. Because, you know, it's not enough for me to have people telling me this is what happens. You know, mm. I kind of wanted to experience it for myself and make sure mm. I felt confident in what I was saying. The phrase you used was, was ground-truthing things, which is, is a good phrase. Uh, and I remember an article you wrote a couple of years ago on a group in Eastern Congo called the ADF who was still kicking around and still uh, there's perhaps more sort of heat than lights on who they actually are, what their motives are and what they're doing. None of what you're describing is, is it requires sort of care and it requires time. It's not hugely resource intensive. It's not hugely technically complicated, but a lot of the time it just seems that it doesn't happen. I mean, we make assumptions or worse, we make policy on the basis of, Sort of relatively slender sources of information from the places concerned. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, you must have encountered this time and again. Yeah, I think the the ADF is a good example. They're that, called the Allied Democratic Forces, mm-hmm. which is a ridiculous name. As many doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. No. <laughs> many rebel groups like most, have yeah. uh, liberation or democratic and sovereignty. Absolutely, as far from that as possible, but. Right. But that was a group that was very an enigmatic group yeah. that was Islamic. So there were a lot of people speculating about these connections with Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab. And, but because the group was so closed off, you know, there was, it was very hard to get information about what were their objectives and who were their allies. So there were people who kind of bought into this narrative, though, that, you know, I found problematic because it was basically just rumor. But on the group of experts, this was something that, you know, some of the Security Council members had specifically asked us, like, please investigate this, find out as much as you can. And we did. And what we found is that there were no connections. But there were people in the UN mission who Mm. did not want to believe this and didn't take our word for it. And um, I think made some serious policy mistakes as a result of that. And that was frustrating to witness because we weren't part of that structure. And despite our, you know, advice to them, they, they were buying into these narratives. I mean, one of the, the things that I did in 2014, part of it is, is really just opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right place at the right time. And you make the right connections with the right people who get you access to good information. So with the ADF work that we did in 2014, there were people who were surrendering or escaping or were being left behind because they were starving to death. And we were able to access those people. If I had been a student, there's no way I could have talked to them. But because I'm a UN group of experts, I had that door open to me. But then I spent hours with people, hours in each interview, and some people I met multiple times over the course of months. Mm. And in doing that, it was almost an ethnographic approach that I used on that. But 
a couple of things happen. First, you start kind of getting past the superficial, mm. you know, little uh, first few interview questions to really get to know the person and to get to, you know, a deeper level of analysis. Mm-hmm. And I'll just tell one quick anecdote. I used to go to the Cachot, which was this little horrible little jail in Benny, a four meter by four meter building with no windows mm-hmm. where there would be 40 to 50 guys at any given time. And this is where they were putting the ADF. So I, you know, arrived in Benny. I went there, presented myself to the authorities, said, I'll be back the next morning. Next morning I come eight o'clock in the morning. And there was one of the rebels who I'd become close to. And I used him to interpret for Luganda Mm -hmm. to English for me. So I asked for him, I said, you know, are there any new guys? And he said, yeah, there's a couple of new guys. So I asked for one of those new guys. The authorities tell me, oh, well, you can't use our office today for the interview because someone from Anusco is coming. I said, all right, can I use my car? And I'll sit in the car. You can put a soldier outside the car. I'm not going anywhere. They said, all right, they allowed me to do that. So I sat in the front seat. I have the two rebels in the back seat and there's a soldier standing outside. So I start the interview. During this time, the guy from Manusco shows up, you know, big entourage, interpreters, this and that. He goes into the office and literally I I sat for two hours in that car talking to a, a new guy just come in from the bush. During that time, the guy from Manusco talked to 10 people. It was like a revolving door. People were coming in and out. And I knew his interpreter. And later I asked him about it. And he said, yeah, the guy, you know, he'd asked two or three questions. He was seeking to confirm things he thought were true. And it was just this very superficial, you know, little few minutes of interview, bring in the next guy. Uh, We took a a different approach, you know, and I feel like we got much better information. Mm. But that part of that information was there's no connections with Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab. And, you know, it wasn't just in terms of what people were telling us. It was documents that we recovered, Mm -hmm. documents that the Congolese Army recovered that we reviewed, um, audio tapes, uh, evidence of analysis of the bombs that they made Mm -hmm. that were extremely crude, that when UN uh, folks looked at it said... If, these, if they were connected to Al-Shabaab or Al-Qaeda, they would be making much more sophisticated bombs. This was like, you know, grade school level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of that, and yet the UN kept the, the MONUSCO mission, mm. kept pushing this narrative of alleged uh, connections to Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab. And it was very frustrating because I just felt like you're, you know... It put them on a defensive posture, which was one thing. Mm-hmm. So that rather than being out in the field, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I different stories keep popping into my head. That <laughs> I don't want to go the too colorful far. Or gruesome, but we'll, we'll get just, you in trouble. Just as an example, you know, one of the things I learned from the interviews and from the documents we got was that mm-hmm. ADF who were in the forest would receive deliveries at night. Everything happened at night. So people were delivered at night. Goods were delivered, money, weapons. Everything happens at night. When do you think the UN was doing their patrols? During the day. 
And in fact, they were setting up their checkpoint, right. their police checkpoint between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. every day <laughs> in the same place. Yes. So Sophisticated this, operation, was, this, this was completely ineffectual. And we were advising, and even there were people in Manusco who did want to do night patrols or do some monitoring of the road. And then it came down to the troop contributing countries mm -hmm. who were to saying, no, you know, our troops are not going out at night because they didn't want to put them in danger. So I, I don't want to, you know, cast aspersion upon the mission as a whole, because yeah. in some cases, the mission, people in the mission were trying to do the right thing. And the troop contributing countries were refusing to follow the orders that they were given. Yeah, I mean, that sort of touches on, goes directly to a comment you made, made earlier that, you know, even if the information is good, the question is, is it actually used? Is it actually acted on? So what kind of barriers, I guess, uh, exist at the, the point where information gets turned into action? I mean, true. What troop contributing countries are or not willing to do uh, is evident. But if you look at something like well, mineral smuggling out of DRC, I think there's a lot of stereotypes or very crudely drawn pictures that inform policy. What lies behind your sort of uh, slightly frustrated, I will say, comment that it's not often used? The second year I was on the group of experts, mm -hmm. which was 2014-2015, some people in the State Department the U.S. State Department, encouraged me to get as much information as I could about the Kampala gold traders. These guys were well known. They'd been, in fact, their companies had been sanctioned, but they continued to operate because the Ugandan government was basically looking the other way, probably enabling them. So I was encouraged to gather as much information as I could about the individuals who were buying the gold because the U.S. people in the U.S. State Department were interested in sanctioning them as individuals and not waiting for the Security Council to act, where there's a lot of politics involved and can be very difficult. So I did that. I spent a lot of time. This was partly why I'm, I was surveilling their buying locations. Your sophisticated uh, <laughs> surveillance operation that you're running, yes. Very sophisticated. And at the end of the year was told by those same people, you did a great job, you know, you gave us what we wanted. Mm. But the problem was that at the level of U.S. relations with Uganda, there were two issues that were more important. Right. One was that Uganda was contributing troops to AMISOM, the mm. UN mission in Somalia. Yep. And that was the top U.S. priority, that mm. Uganda continue to be a major, you know, fighting that fight in Somalia. And then number two was that there was legislation then that would have been proposed to impose the death penalty for homosexual acts. Right. Yes. I remember. And the Obama administration was quite forceful in opposing that uh, with the Ugandan government. Mm. So gold smuggling was further down on that list. Mm. So even though there were people in the State Department who really wanted to push this and have this happen, it clashed against these other competing foreign policy objectives. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to blame it on that. It could be that my evidence wasn't strong enough, you know, that there's a lot of other competing factors. But that was something that I came out of it feeling like, you know, even if you do your best job, if there's some other 
imperative that's there mm. uh, in terms of foreign policy that all your work is going to be for naught. But on the other hand, I do feel like these things build up. And so eventually mm. sanctions have been levied, for example, this year on a warlord in Katanga. Yeah. And in the, the write-up of why they were sanctioning him, they cited work that I did in 2013. So, I, you know, sometimes you can't see the results of the work right away. And you have to hope that maybe something's going to happen down the road. It, it's frustrating when you spend a lot of time working on a subject and then you don't see any results of it. And unfortunately, that happened a lot on the, uh, on the group of experts. Yeah, that's sort of a central, almost existential question in that kind of job, right? If you're putting inputs into a, a policy machine that is unresponsive, that must be extremely hard in terms of motivation and, and uh, you know, belief in the mission, for lack of a better word. Well, it, you know, another example that just popped into my head was right in the first year in 2013, where we wrote up uh, a Congolese general, General Bonane. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, he was a colonel when he had been doing a lot of bad stuff in Atori. Mm-hmm. I don't need to go into it, but he was a bad apple. So we wrote him up. I found his Facebook page. We put his Facebook photo in the report. And then we went on break mm-hmm. for our, after our midterm report. When we came back, we learned that uh, President Kabila had promoted Colonel Bonane to become a general. So it was such a, you just felt so deflated that you had just done all this work uh, documenting that this high-ranking officer is a criminal, and then he gets promoted. Mm. And and he's still on active service. But that happened a lot because the Congolese aren't a government. You know, most of the people we identified as bad actors were Congolese army officers. Mm. And we produced a public report, and we produced a confidential report for the Security Council. Mm-hmm. The confidential report is where we recommended certain people for sanctions. They were smuggling arms. They were using child soldiers. Here's the evidence. Uh, most of the people we recommended during my time were Congolese Army officers, mm-hmm. and nothing ever happened, at either at the Security Council level or, as far as I can tell, at the um, Congolese government level. Mm-hmm. So that's very... Frustrating. Yes. <laughs> when you're charged with this great responsibility, you take it seriously. You try to provide as much documentation as you can, and yeah. then you feel like it's just been ignored. Well, and you're in, in Washington, D.C. now doing something sort of linked and thematically, but not closely linked. Is that because it was frustrating working at that level? It's more for personal reasons, combination of the two? I mean, I... I and on the one hand, you say it's hugely frustrating. On the other hand, you just said to me five minutes ago that you miss being in the field, right? Um, you know, at the end of uh, my second term with the tour, with the uh, group of experts, I was really burned out. I yeah. was exhausted. It was a challenging job. It was probably the greatest job I'll ever have because you were in the field, running around, investigating issues of great importance, reporting directly to the Security Council about them. But it was also very exhausting, um, very long days, a lot of time in the field. Also, you know, risks to personal safety that all of us took 
multiple times. Mm -hmm. And I felt towards the end that if I continue to do this, I may be pushing my luck, Mm. that something might happen. And so I needed a break Mm -hmm. after that. And uh, so I did some consulting um, that had me in the field a little bit, but not much. Now, that short break has turned in a little bit longer than I expected. And so I'm working you know, on supply chain transparency issues. Mm. But now I'm the guy back in the office who's uh, assembling what the people in the field are doing Mm. rather than being the guy in the field. That was the old group of experts. It's not like that anymore. Um, You know, two experts, uh, Michael Sharp and Zaida Catalan, were killed in March 2017, just Mm. about a year ago to the day that we're talking. And... Um, that produced some changes that were much needed and overdue, but it's basically handcuffed the group of experts now. Uh, they can't do what we did in terms of, you know, we had a lot of freedom to, we heard about, we hear about something going on, get in the car and go. And often against the UN security rules, mm-hmm. which would say that's a red road, it's insecure, you need to take an armed convoy. We just we, we just would go, yes. And now, it uh, you know they have multiple levels of permission. They have to go in armed convoys. Mm. Uh, they're just you know their ability to access information in a quick manner and like kind of primary source, and without having guys with guns you know standing behind you is pretty much gone. Mm. And that affects the you know the amount of information you're going to get and the quality. So, you know, that was kind of a, there was kind of a, a, almost a golden age of the group of experts where we were kind of cowboys running around in the field. There were some real downsides to that because people were taking unnecessary risks in some cases and putting themselves and their colleagues at risk and Mm. potentially others. There were some stories I know where people came very close to getting killed. And unfortunately that happened in 2017. Mm. And it wasn't their fault. This was a, a setup, mm. uh, you know, from my understanding. But it almost was um, not that surprising that something happened because of the nature of the job. Yeah. But that was, you know, that that was one thing that when that happened that I felt like the Security Council, there were a lot of expectations on us to produce you know, the inside scoop, the stuff that the UN peacekeeping mission with its hundreds of analysts is well, not getting. Which is a $1.6 billion a year organization right. for, for context. Yeah. And so we're six people yeah. who are supposed to get the story that everyone else is missing. Yeah. And really the only way to do that is you put yourself at risk sometimes. Mm-hmm. And we all did it. Mm-hmm. Driving down roads alone to go talk to the rebels by yourself. Mm. You know, I did that a couple of times Mm. and driving to the town that's just been burned when you don't know who's waiting in that town, uh, that I did that a couple of times and yet on the security council and, you know, the mission, the different missions, uh, the, the governments that sit on the security council, no one ever really asked us like, what do you guys do? How do you do it? Do you have what you need to do your job? Mm. Are you safe? And they just wanted us to get that information. 
so there was a lot of pressure that we put on ourselves to kind of go that extra mile. And that was where I, I, after two years of that, I felt like I love this, but I'm worried that I'm going to drive down that road into that village and something is going to be waiting for me the next time I do it. So it was time, I recognized that it was time to take a step back and uh, take a break from it. One of the reasons that I wanted to um, have you in this series is that following the, the, the deaths of your two, um, two colleagues, there was a lot of talk about uh, sort of risk in the sense of personal security. Um, but what was largely missing from that conversation was the bigger strategic risks of being poorly informed and basing policy on bad or non-existent foundations. Because this is a, a peacekeeping mission that I worked for that has been there 20 years Congo has deteriorated substantially in the last few years, and sort of the the global thinking of everyone is well, we had kind of a, we had a honeymoon period, we had a period of relative stability, and we, you know, it's not up to the international community entirely or even primarily, but to the extent we had a role, we probably blew it over that period. This is what a lot of experts, in, you know, in the general sense in Congo, sort of feel. So there are huge risks of a different kind of not investing in this function, right? I mean, are we careful enough in terms of gathering the information and the analysis that is needed to act in a way that makes sense in these environments for, for peacekeeping missions or political interface to do the stuff that is, is needed? You know, are we getting the foundations to design that properly? Yeah, I don't think so. Mm. I'll just bring up another, I'll make it short, but a story. <laughs> Please give where, me all your stories. <laughs> you know, my, my dissertation was on the war in Ituri, which yes. was a war within the war. Yes. And in, so Uganda invaded Ituri in 1998 mm-hmm. and occupied it. They then work with proxy rebel groups, you know, to kind of manage it while they're plundering the gold and timber and whatever. And then in 1999, this ethnic conflict starts between mm-hmm. the Hema and the Lendu groups. And then they end up forming formal armed groups that fight it out Mm -hmm. uh, through 2007. So in 2009, I'm working on my dissertation and I realized I don't really know enough about what happened at the start of the war. Mm. And I've read different things uh, by famous academics. I've read the UN reports and they all had the same narrative. The HEMA, there were greedy HEMA landowners Mm -hmm. who were trying to steal land from poor, innocent, victim, Lendu farmers. Mm-hmm. And the Lendu rose up against their oppressors. And that started the conflict. So this is famous academics, UN Security Council reports, yes. all had this. So this was what I read, and I took my notes carefully. And then I went to the villages where the first fighting happened mm-hmm. to find out what happened. I show up in 2009. And people said to me, you're the first one to come here and ask us what happened. And, mm. and I had difficulty getting to the truth uh, because if I asked the Lendu, and it took me dozens of interviews over the course, actually, you know, not just uh, one year, but coming back a second year, talk to people to get through the narratives that have been created, partly by the UN and academics mm. about you know this greedy Hema Lendu victim narrative 
that informed everyone's thinking and informed policies about mm. how to address peace in this region. Mm. If you look at one side as the aggressor and the other as the victim, you design your policies around that. Mm -hmm. And what I found was a much more complicated picture where you had elites from both sides manipulating their own populations for their own greed. That was an important lesson to me. You know, it was a shocker to me that some famous academics had got it wrong. But when I went back and, and looked, they were doing their interviews in Kampala, Uganda. Hmm. That's where they cited it, or Bunya, or Kinshasa. So they were, they were getting second or third hand information and writing it up. The UN Security Council, similar thing. It was too dangerous to go to those places. So they were talking to people who were feeding them narratives about what happened. But if you don't ground truth it, then you're very likely going to miss what's happening, I think. And that, I think, is still happening today. I want to unpack the Ituri case a little bit because for context, I mean, this is a exceptionally violent sort of uh, space and time of conflict that we're talking about. It prompted not just the UN mission to intervene heavily, but an EU-backed uh, mission as well, primarily French. Uh, huge international press uh, by the standards of these things. For someone to say that no one had ever actually come to the site or one of the sites of this sort of contest, right? Going to the district capital as it, as it then was is one thing, but actually going to the site and talking to sort of primary stakeholders or interlocutors, that's really quite incredible when you think about it. It's an extraordinarily sort of heavy, expensive intervention resting on incredibly slender foundations or just outright shaky foundations. Um, if it's based on sort of a cross-border refugee narrative. It was shocking to me yeah. um, in, you know, when I first went there in 2009. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the UN did have a period of success in Ituri sure. because as you say, you know, the, the Ugandans completely mucked it up. And then when they were withdrawing in 2003, that's when there was a real, a serious concern about a genocide taking place mm -hmm. between the two, not just two, but uh, several ethnic groups. And that's when the French-led uh, Operation Artemis took place. And the French came in and basically kicked some butt. Mm -hmm. um, and You can swear on this podcast if you like. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's just that you're being a polite... Uh, sometimes Americans are... Well, you know, they, the French came in and kicked some ass. <laughs> and they took control of Bunya, yes. uh, you know, the kind of the center where there's the airport... Yeah. And that allowed the UN to more to deploy more troops. Yeah. And then for a couple of years the UN didn't really do much in Ituri mm -hmm. until there was the what happened in Bukavu mm -hmm. where you had, you know, a rebel army basically walk in past UN peacekeepers and take over a major city. This caused a huge embarrassment for the UN. People mm -hmm. were saying, "Why is the UN even in Congo if you're not if you're going to allow rebels to take over a major city?" This led Kofi Annan to appoint a new general mm -hmm. to go to Congo uh, named Patrick Kamert, mm -hmm. a Dutch general. And Kamert came to Ituri. Uh, he identified, you know, the problems were really north and south Kivu and Ituri. And he said, I'm going to address Ituri first. Mm -hmm. And when he came in, his approach was, 
I'm going to aggressively attack the rebel groups and I'm going to let them know I'm going to attack them and hope that they'll negotiate. And this largely succeeded, actually, because Mm -hmm. he killed a bunch of rebels, but a lot of people started deserting and entering the disarmament DDR programs. And by 2007, he had largely pacified Ituri and gotten the major rebel leaders to come in, uh, some of whom were later arrested and put on trial. But that was kind of a success. But as soon as they kind of took the, the boil off of Ituri, the UN started sending all its people down to North and South Kivu mm-hmm. to address the problems there. And they stopped paying as much attention to Ituri. Mm. And the Congolese government certainly had no interest in Ituri other than exploiting it for its rich gold and, and timber resources, in my opinion. They were just interested in making money and not governing and creating a lasting peace. Mm-hmm. And that allowed certain problems like land conflicts and ethnic tensions to remain very high in certain areas. Mm. And this is where the conflict started in 1999 is where the problems are happening right now in 2018 because they were not addressed. And when I went up to those villages and talked to people, I talked to a Lendu chief, Chief Longbe, who's from that area. And I remember I, I met him a couple of times and he said, no, Hema are not welcome here. We do not want them. This is our land. We were here first. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, plus they left. And I said, yeah, but they, you chased them away during the war. And he said, it doesn't matter. They left. <laughs> they gave up their land and they're not welcome back. <laughs> and so UN Habitat, which is you know, part of the UN, they had created a small effort to try and address land conflicts. And one of the areas was up in this area where the war had started. But when I went there and talked to those people, I learned that they had been handpicked by Chief Longbay. Mm. That was the only way he would allow the UN to come in and address Mm. land conflicts was if he picked the people who would be on that commission. So his people, when I talked to them, they said, yeah, the Hamer are not welcome here. Mm. So this was a UN effort to address land conflicts, but because of the local politics, was populated by people who had a very rigid view against the other ethnic group. Mm. And... I remember at the time saying, you're just prolonging these problems. They're not being addressed. And, uh, you know, that's what makes me very sad to see this resurgence now. Why, when I sat down and I asked people what happened in 1999, and some of them start in the 16th century, you need to be attuned to that. And you need to sit there for a couple of hours and Mm. let them tell their whole story. Mm. And they even said, go back. And uh, read Henry Morton Stanley. They said, have you read Henry Morton Stanley? And I said, no. He said, read Henry Morton Stanley. And I went back and I read Henry Morton Stanley. Yeah. I listened to them. Henry Morton Stanley, when he came on his Amin Pasha rescue expedition, mm-hmm. I, I forget the year, but maybe 1879, he came through Ituri. And there were certain tribes that cooperated with him. One of them was the Hama. There were certain tribes that fought him and attacked him, and one was the Lendu. Mm -hmm. And so he described the Hema as intelligent and, you know, warm and clearly superior. Clearly, yes. 
And the Lendu were violent and pouring abuse mm -hmm. and negative. And these elders in Ituri, they had read Henry Morton Stanley. And they said the ideas that he planted at that time, when the Belgians came in, they read Henry Morton Stanley. So they viewed the Hema as superior and, mm -hmm. you know, people they could work with. And they viewed the Lendu as inferior and violent. And these narratives start to be reinforced and internalized by the local population. So I, I know probably none of this is going to end up in your thing because it's too far afield. But I, I think it is it's, not too far afield. <laughs> but I think that, you know, the, really having that historical understanding is key. But also going to the field, yeah. um, going to the place where things happened. Uh, so that, you know, you can kind of ground truth, you know, the stories that you hear from others. It's, it's not far afield. In fact, it's, it's the direct sort of center of, of what I'm interested in in a way, because from what you're saying and from obviously from my own experience, um, there's something wrong with how we create narratives, uh, as you put it, or how narratives emerge about these sort of places and sites of conflict, right? Uh, we end up with a mental image that is uh, is wrong in material mm -hmm. respects. And the, the Henry Morton Stanley example is sort of extreme, right? Because it's like one arguably psychopathic sort of colonial figure cutting his way across the country and we take his word as, as gospel. And like, yes, you can understand that it happens 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, you're saying you go to a part of a tree, which is not it's not easy to get to. It's not that difficult. I mean, there's some security risk, but you can you can do it. Uh, and apparently, we're also basing our thinking in the this century on a couple of accounts, largely secondhand, which we're getting in somewhere quite different in, mm -hmm. in another country or certainly in another in another city. So that seems quite bizarre, given the uh, the amount of resources engaged in these sort of exercises, that you do have a 22,000-person peacekeeping mission now slightly decreased. How do we do a better job of getting the, not the right narrative, but a balanced and sort of empirically sourced one in place? And you've just sort of hinted at this, but if you could elaborate. Um, I think that you need people who have a good understanding of the place that they're working in mm -hmm. and don't just jump from Afghanistan into Congo mm. and are put in a position of great authority and decision-making power mm. who don't understand anything about the place that they're operating in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's happened on the group of experts. Mm -hmm. It's happened um, in the mission mm -hmm. as well, where you also have people who rotate out especially the military side mm -hmm. of, the, of the mission, where some of the intelligence work is taking place. Mm -hmm. You have people come in for six months and rotate out. You almost need people who are there for a longer term, but I think you need better trained people as well mm -hmm. uh, with some of the intelligence work that's done within the peacekeeping mission. You have people with no training or very poor training who are doing in information gathering and analysis. Mm -hmm who lack the skills to do it, in some cases, including the language skills. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that th those are key things. Another thing that I learned um, when I was on the group of experts is that 
some people in the mission don't necessarily respect the opinions of the Congolese mm -hmm. who work for them. So I knew people, some of them I knew before I was on the group of experts, you know, when I was a student or a consultant. And then suddenly I'm in the, on the, in the UN. You know, they expressed this to me, that they were frustrated. And so there were things they wouldn't share because mm -hmm. they felt that they were not being valued, mm -hmm. that their opinions were not being valued. But it's a fine line to walk uh, because there are people who were in the mission who I think were working for some of the bad actors and leaking loads of information. I mean, certainly the Rwandan government somehow had a direct access to basically every UN report that was being produced. Um, Pretty much, yeah. So you have to be somewhat cautious. I think it's also recognizing when there's an opportunity to understand what's going on and taking appropriate advantage of that. The story, which I'll try and keep short, is that in early 2014, Congolese army is waging an operation against the ADF rebel mm -hmm. group, this Islamic group. They've just taken the headquarters camp of this rebel group. So we had one person, the group of experts on the ground in Beni at that time. And the force commander for MINUSCO, the general in charge, he wanted to go see this camp right after it was taken. So our guy on the group of experts tagged along and it's, it's, it was not an easy trip. I, I made this trip twice. It involved driving for a couple of hours from Benny on an insecure road, mm -hmm. parking, and then a difficult two hour hike into the bush. So this general goes there and he's got his photographers and they're posing for pictures in the rebel camp that's just been taken. Meanwhile, our guy, who tagged along on this is get picking up anything he can grab off the ground Yeah, well, because course. there's papers, yeah. there's cassette tapes, there's this, that there's that there's cartridges. The UN mission sent no one from political affairs, from civil affairs, from any of the intelligence units to go along to do maybe an assessment. Maybe let's see what's, What's yeah. in this camp? What can we find? What can we learn about this group about which we know almost nothing yeah. from the fact that their headquarters camp has been taken? Instead, it was a photo op for the general to go up there. So I arrived in Benny about two days after that, and we decided, he, he said, there's way more up there. We got to go back. We couldn't get permission from the Congolese army. So we literally bought some whiskey and cigarettes. We got up at 6 a.m. We drove to that trailhead. Yeah. And we talked and gifted our way to get an escort to go up to the camp. Yeah. And I filled my backpack with documents. I didn't even know what I was grabbing. We weren't taking the time. We just saw there's a unique opportunity here before this stuff starts disappearing. Because sure enough, the Congolese soldiers were using the papers for, for fires yeah, and anything else that was there. Yeah. You know, the second time I went up 10 days later, it was completely transformed. All the, the, the good stuff was gone. But one of the interesting things just from observing is that in, there were 
you know, say several hundred small huts because mm-hmm. this was the headquarters camp. Maybe 800 or 1,000 people had lived there. Basically a village in the middle of the forest. But as we're, we're going around and we're poking our heads in every hut just to see what's in there, inside people had painted things like, I love you, show me love, in English, right? We're, we're expecting, we, we've been hearing that they're connected to Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab. <laughs> yeah. So I'm expecting death to America. Of course. Uh, things like that. You know, we love you, Osama. No, we're seeing other things and, yeah. and we're not, but what, importantly, we're not seeing things we expected to see based on the narratives we've been told mm-hmm. about them being connected to international terror organizations. So... You know, there was, we were kind of amazed that MONUSCO, the UN mission, didn't take advantage of this opportunity to go to the camp. Instead, it was a photo op for the general to make him look like a tough guy with his pistol on his hip. Literally both times filled my backpack with documents. Yeah. And, (laughs) and, you know stuff in Arabic. We ended up getting some of it translated. Yeah. And again, it was it was telling for what it said and for what it didn't say because what we found was a lot of stuff like children's school books. They had schools. We found um they had a uh divorce mediation committee when there were marital disputes and we found the complaints where the <laughs> husband's complaining that when he comes home his wife doesn't greet him. And doesn't have dinner ready. Right. Yes. I mean, it, it just showed how mundane the, the, the whole world <laughs> You're was. Expecting this highly sensitive intel. Oh, yeah. But nowhere in anything that we found, or that the Congolese Army found, did it ever mention Al Qaeda, Al Shabaab, any terror connections. Is the academy any better? You know, I think it it really varies. Um, it depends on that on each academic. Mm-hmm. I think there are some academics that have done amazing work and, mm-hmm. and continue to do amazing work who have great, who go in the field, uh, spend a lot of time in the field, have very good contacts. Then there's other academics who have done, you know, I think there, there's some academics who did the field work when they did their PhD. And then basically everything else since is mm-hmm. you, you go to Kinshasa or Kampala or Kigali and mm-hmm. you talk to people and you write your book. So there's a kind of a lack of time in the field to kind of ground truth things. I mean, this is one of the things I learned over time in Congo is from from literally interviewing hundreds of people is that there are people who are going to lie to you and there's people who are going to try and lead you astray for whatever reason, because they think they're going to get something out of it, Mm -hmm. because they've been sent to mislead you, because they belong to an ethnic group that has a certain narrative and they don't want to deviate from that. And so you have to be aware every time you sit down with someone, where are they coming from and try and get a sense of that from mm. them. With the group of experts we'll be found with the ADF is that we did have people who were not telling us the truth. And so we developed a, a kind of a test, which was we had we made pictures of the key leaders in ADF. There were photos of them available. We put them in a document. So when we'd get someone new, we'd say, who is this? Can you tell me who these people are? Mm. And if you were in the rebel group, it was very easy to think, oh, yeah, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. 
And often that would lead to very, you know, new stuff. Oh, he was married to this person. They had this many children. You know, we're just kind of filling in the the gaps. Mm. Um, And then there were people like Mr. X who could not identify any of the leaders, even Mm. though he claimed to be the number three in the organization. (laughs) (laughs) So it was very telling. But, you know, these these are sometimes things that it takes time and experience to pick up you know, you can't just kind of take the first thing that someone tells you about who they are. What you're saying sort of is good common sense or good sort of learned experience, right? Sort of stuff that any reasonably well-experienced professional should be able to come up with some sort of process like this, right? For, for just testing to a reasonable degree the veracity of what you're getting and also triangulating it. What's striking or what's different about this context is that you seem to be able to get away and a lot of the stories you're telling people sort of get away with this very superficial lazy for lack of a better word approach in a way that i don't think you could if you were working uh in the government in this country or the uk or belgium or wherever else right mm-hmm. uh it just seems like we accept uh lower standards frankly, that we are much readier to construct a very simple narrative in these circumstances. And this includes academics who are they, you know, doing uh, ethnography or social research in their home country. And there's predominantly people from the global north. You know, if they're doing this in their home country, they would be supervised and, 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 and corrected if they were using such sloppy research methods. Is this, are the standards just lower? Are we just less careful in these sorts of contexts and more ready to create a simple narrative? Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, I don't have the, I don't have the, you know, the single answer to what's needed to be done. Maybe it'll come out of a hundred voices. All, uh, <laughs> Cause it, your first podcast, what I, and one of the things I appreciated was that, you know, I can't remember the exact numbers, but he said something about, you know, you're, you're making, um, decisions based on 50% of the uh, information, mm. you know, you hope you're right 70% of the time. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a, a great outcome to be right 70% well, of the time. Well, that would be, that would be great. Yeah. But, you know, I think that that's part of it is that you have to recognize your own limitations and mm. the limitations of the knowledge that's available. You have to try and make the best decision. But I think you always have to be aware that, you don't have the whole story mm-hmm. and to keep seeking and looking for the new information. I remember when I, after I did that field work in, mm. and went to all these villages and talked to people and I had to track down a priest, I had to like take this crazy motorcycle trip to find this priest who had been there when the first attack had taken place. And uh, I presented this at an academic conference and I stood up, and I said, you know, I'm going to talk about the beginning of the war in Turi. And I said, what, what had previously been written about the start of the war, I think, was 25% of the story. Mm-hmm. And I said, I feel like now, after all of my field research, I have 50% of the story. And I'm going to tell you that. But I know that there's so much more. And afterwards, Herbert Weiss, who's a very famous um, academic who was in Congo and, like, at Independence... He came up to me. I didn't know he was in the audience. He came up to me and he said, you need to go back and get 100% of that story. (laughs) And I said, you know, I would love to, but that could be your life's work 
to get a hundred percent. I said, I, I don't think I can get better than 50%. Yeah. But it's, it's recognizing that, that you're, you may only get 50% of the story. Mm. You know, you may only be right 70% of the time. And to keep that in mind as you're making decisions so that you can loop back around and try and make a better decision next time, you know, to be aware of the shortcomings in your analysis so you can improve it mm -hmm. or do corrections mid-course and not just think this is how it is. This rebel group is working with Al-Qaeda and we're going to proceed accordingly. Um, I feel like that kind of rigidity, though, is what often ends up getting baked into a lot of decision making in a big bureaucracy. I did want to ask you about the book. Not so much, I mean, sort of what it's about, but I'm, I'm more interested why, having written a book a few years ago myself, it is a laborious and certainly not remunerative and quite exhausting thing. So you have to have a pretty good reason to do it. And you're not a tenured academic. You're not being paid to produce uh, outputs. So what was the, what was the motivation? When I started, it was that I had some stories that I thought, you know, that I had told orally mm -hmm. to in different audiences that had been received well and people were interested in. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll write some of these up as like short stories to publish them. And then just started building out from there. But also I started working on this very shortly, only a couple of weeks before Michael and Zaida were killed mm -hmm. a year ago. And, you know, when they first they disappeared and it took more than two weeks to find the bodies. And so I was in contact with a lot of people just trying to find out what's going on. And then, of course, the, you know, we had the, the tragic answer. Um, but it also, you know, that made me a little bit more want to tell a story that hasn't been told before, which mm -hmm. is the story of the group of experts. And it, partly it hasn't been told because the Secretariat in New York threatens you very seriously with a lawsuit if you write anything about this. Uh, so I've had to, I'm, I'm writing it a bit carefully right. yes. uh, for that reason. But over the years, the, the group of experts, there were a lot of different people on it. Mm -hmm. uh, some were great researchers, some were awful, and some very good things came out of the group's work. Some very bad things came out of the group's work. So I'm writing this to kind of tell my story mm -hmm. about what I did and how I did it, but also tell some other stories about, you know, how does this investigative body of the Security Council actually work? Or as it is, how did it work? Because now everything has really changed mm. since uh, Michael and Zaida were killed. It's interesting to me because there is, I mean, for a number of reasons, but uh, one of them is that there are so few books or even shorter pieces of this kind. Like it is quite rare to find a practitioner's uh, memoir or retrospective. I mean, if you look at the military, there's libraries full of them. Um, doctors, lawyers produce them in great numbers, but it's quite rare to find them for anyone who does. I mean, investigative stuff or research stuff, but equally humanitarians, peacekeepers, like it's really quite rare. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's unfortunate because um, there's a lot of things to learn 
yeah. from e- even within the groups. My, my first year on the group, New York organized a meeting with experts from different groups. Mm-hmm. So there were two people from each group, mm-hmm. which were about a dozen groups at that time. And I was one of the two. And uh, it was great because I was the finance expert on the Congo group. But in talking to the guy from Sudan, you know, I learned some of the things he was doing. And I thought, gee, why am I not doing that? And so there's so much knowledge and diff- people from different backgrounds. And there wasn't much sharing across the groups. You know, you were very siloed. Mm. Uh, and they, New York has recognized that. And they now bring the groups together once a year to share information. But at that meeting, they threaten you. Do not write a book about this. <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot of people um, don't because they want to stay in that loop. They, that's the other thing. When you, when you start at the beginning of the year, a guy brings you into his office in New York and he basically says, you know, keep your mouth shut and your head down and you can do this job for five years. And, uh, but, it, you know, it's a good question. And mm. it's, that's partly what is motivating me too to want to write this. It's like, all right, it hasn't been written yet. Mm. So this is the first foray to say, here's what I've done. Part of what I'm trying to do with, there's a number of projects I guess I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And some of it is to give a little bit of visibility to the Congolese and what they're doing. Because I feel like, especially within the UN, you have a lot of Congolese who are doing important work, but you have a lot of expats that get credit for that work. Mm -hmm. And that's the same on the group of experts. We had three Congolese staff. They were the invisible members of the group. Mm. You know, it's the six of us who go to New York and sit in front of the Security Council. But there were a lot of places we couldn't go that we sent the Congolese guy to go and take pictures or talk to people or get a document. And that stuff was really key to our work. You know, so a little bit I want to kind of give a little bit more context and say it's not just the six expats most of whom are European or North American uh, and white who are doing this work. But Mm. actually a lot of the dangerous work is done by the Congolese. And I had, I lost friends, uh, not who were working for the group, but working for the mission. Mm. I'm sure, you know, you knew people too. Uh, The Congolese are put, they're underpaid for the risks that they're put, that that they take, Mm. you know, in the field, I think, in, Mm. in many cases. And no, so for sure, for sure. I, I tell one story of a friend of mine who was killed in, in Benny in 2014, mm. uh, who was very key to my work and mm. was assassinated and had a wife and four kids uh, left behind mm. with no means of support. So, you know, it's very, very tragic. But Yeah. No, there's typically very little sort of institutional reaction in that kind of case. Yeah, they, they ended up giving the wife a job as a janitor, um, which was kind of them to do something. It's not nothing. So. It's, not, it's a long way from ideal, I would, I would think. Well, it's a long way from what you would get if you were, you know, yeah. an American who was in the field working for Department of Peacekeeping Operations and you're killed. Yes, um, exactly. So yeah. there, there's that difference is pretty stark. Mm. Do you have a title yet? You have to start plugging this thing, you know. My working title is We Run From Both Sides. It was from a, a woman whose village had been burned in Katanga. Right. And when we were interviewing her, she 
said, you know, yeah, the rebels come and, uh, you know, they burn us. But when the, the Congolese army comes, we run yeah. also because yeah. we're afraid of them and we run from both sides. Mm. So that's my working title. That's a good title. You should, you should keep them. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.